Awesome. Man, it is so good to have you guys here today. You having just anxiety just with me bringing this up on stage right now? Yep. All of a sudden, blood pressure starts to go up. Why is there construction in here? No. Um, this is going to sit here for about 20 minutes, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit. So I need you to just calm down, chill out. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it in just a little bit. Uh, but truly, my name is Brian. If we've not met yet, and pastor, I'm, I'm the pastor here. But man, we're thrilled that uh, we get to worship together, pray together, um, and also open God's word together. So thank you so much for, for making that a priority. We're so glad uh, that you're going to do that with us today. Uh, we are finishing up a series. We spent this entire month going through the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking at specific instances where people met or encountered or heard or listened to Jesus, and they were, uh, they were left with the same response and the same kind of emotion, amazement. But they would hear from Jesus, and they were amazed at his teaching. They saw Jesus do a miracle, and they were gripped with wonder and awe. They saw the power of Jesus, and they were just blown away at who he is and what he's done. So that's what we're going to see today as well. As we go through our passage today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. You're going to start getting there. But in Mark chapter 5, we see Jesus interact with not just one person, but an entire town, and it leaves people absolutely amazed. So Mark chapter 5, we're going to jump in. Let me give you a little context. This would be great. I'm going to give you a couple homework assignments for you to study on your own this week. Here's your first one. Read Mark 4, the end of Mark 4, and all of Mark chapter 5. The reason that's significant is what, what we're going to look at this morning, the story we're going to see, is one miracle out of a collection of four that all happen on one boat ride. It's actually pretty fascinating. He calms the sea, and then we're going to see the story we're going to look at today. Then he heals a woman with, uh, that had a disease or a sickness for 12 years. And then Jesus ends this kind of boat journey by actually raising a little girl from the dead. So when you look at all of those together, it all points to the power and authority of Jesus. So let that be in the front of your, your hearts and minds this morning. It all is focusing, this section of scripture is all pointing to the power and authority of Jesus. So this is the second miracle out of a group of four that all happens while Jesus and his disciples are taking a boat trip back and forth to different parts of this area. So let's look at this together. Mark chapter five, starting in ver verse one. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from the, his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night... He wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now, here's what I need you to pay attention to in this section. Uh, this is a tendency sometimes we have in scripture is we hear a story, we read a story, we read a passage, and we immediately start to separate ourselves saying like, man, that dude was so messed up. Glad I'm not like him. That's, a, that's a, an easy thing for us to do as we study scripture. It's easy for us to kind of disassociate ourselves from a story that we might say is just like super extreme. Like, well, I'm not demon possessed. So I don't know what Brian's gonna like point out today, but this has nothing to do with me. I hope that's true that you're not demon possessed and that's probably accurate. But I think by the end of our time this morning, I think we are gonna relate to this story and this man a whole lot more than you and I might anticipate. Right? That's what's so wonderful about scripture, right? We learn the truths of God, 
We learn his character. We learn how he works. But we also get a beautiful picture, when it's all said and done, at who we are in our relationship with God. Right? So I'm hoping today, as we go through this passage, it's not just, oh man, somebody needs to hear this. Listen up, y'all. This is for you. But that you would start to personalize and say, you know what? I'm actually more like this than maybe I think. To help with that, what I just read, let me put it up on the screen. I'm going to put some underlines through this. These are the different descriptions we get of this demon-possessed man that you and I have nothing that we can relate to about him. So here's the different parts we're going to look at real quick. Possessed, evil spirit, lived in the burial caves, could no longer be restrained, no one was strong enough to subdue him, and lastly, day and night he wandered. That describes this man. So let's go through those one by one, and maybe again, you and I will start to relate to this man more than we might think. So let's talk about possess or possessed. The definition, uh, the dictionary definition of possess or to possess is to cause to fall under the influence, domination, or control of. In other words, you are gripped by something or someone. Something has captivated you. Something has held on to you. You've allowed something into your life that is no longer just a thing. It has now become the thing. And it's become obsessive. It's become all-consuming. It is the only thing in your life at that point. It has become some, you have become possessed by something or someone and you've lost control. You're no longer controlling it. It is now controlling you. That's possess. We're told that he's possessed by an evil spirit, right? The literal, uh, the literal meaning here from the original language is unclean, right? So for this man, it is a physical demon that has taken possession over him and has control over him. What I think for us is helpful is an evil spirit is anything that is not of God. Anything that is not of God, that is not part of God, that is not according to God's will and purpose, his character, so we could just with those two descriptions, possessed by an evil spirit, if we were to maybe look at that in our own lives, we would maybe say something like, I have allowed something not of God to consume my life. That sounds a little bit more like me than I care to admit, right? Now, all of a sudden, that doesn't sound like just this guy's problem. All of a sudden, that sounds a little bit more like what we might actually go through. So possessed, evil spirit, then he lived among the burial caves. He lived among the tombs. Couple things to pay attention to here. First was the isolation. Because of this man being possessed by an evil spirit, the rest of the town, the rest of the community didn't know what to do with him. So they moved him far, far away. They shoved him up into the hills where they buried dead people and they said, you stay there, we'll stay over here. They made him an outcast and they didn't wanna have anything to do with him. So he experienced isolation and being alone, loneliness. But the other part of this, again, if you look at the original language here, it's not just he lived there or dwelled there. Literal language would say he settled down among the tombs. See, oftentimes when we allow something into our lives that's not of God, it starts out temporary. Well, I just visit that thing every now and then. I just go to that every now and then. I'm, it's not like part of like all of my life. It's just like a small little piece of my life which maybe that's how it started out with this man, but for that description to say, he lived there. He took up residence there. Those things that we may visit periodically, eventually do we start settling down with the evil and the ungodly aspects of our lives. So he was consumed by something not of God and it was no longer temporary. It's become permanent. 
It's become where he has taken up residence. He has settled down and begun to dwell there. Possessed, evil spirit, lived among the tombs. And then we're told this, he could no longer be restrained, which allows us to assume that at one point he could be restrained, but it's gotten worse over time. He once was in control, but then over time, he completely lost control. At one point, he could reside over this, but over time, he lost complete ability, and nobody else could do anything to help him with it. It got stronger and stronger and more powerful and more powerful until it had a complete grip on him. Hitting close to home yet? Maybe we've allowed something into our life that is not of God and it used to be temporary, but now we live with it. We live with it and it has gripped us and it's not letting go. And I don't know how I got to this point because it used to not be so bad, but now it is. So possessed, evil spirit, lived among the tombs, no longer could be restrained. Second to last one, no one was strong enough to subdue him. In other words, no one could do anything to help him. And oh, they tried. Like, I'm going to give these townspeople, this community, the benefit of the doubt. And it sounded like whether it was for their own self-preservation or whether they really did have a heart to help this man, they tried to help him. They tried to restrain him. They tried to do something. And maybe it worked for a little bit, but obviously it didn't have a lasting impact as this spirit had a stronger and stronger grip on this man, that eventually it was, we can't do anything to help you. No longer could anyone subdue him. No longer could anybody help him. No one was strong enough to do anything about it. We might use the word helpless at this point. Like, it's like, I'm helpless. I can't do anything to help this man. What do we do when we get to that place of helplessness? We push him away. Go up into the tombs, live there, stay away. We're going to stay over here. You stay over there. We'll mind our own business. You mind your own business. And they pushed him out. Last thing that to, pay, to pay attention to is we're told day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. And that's the definition of torment. He is being tormented from the inside out. That is the opposite of what we would call peace and comfort and calm. He's experienced the exact opposite of that. Day and night, meaning there's no rest from this, there's no getting away from this. There's no getting out of this. And he seems to so desperately want to, right? It seems like he's down the path of self-destruction. If something doesn't change, he cannot continue to live this way. And this is, of course, not the life that God would, would want us to live, right? So when we begin to, to paint that picture, it doesn't just sound like that guy's problem anymore. It starts to sound like my problem. To allow something that's not of God into my life, it used to be temporary, but now I live there. And it's gotten stronger and more powerful. And other people have tried to help me and it really hasn't helped. It might've lasted for a little bit, but it doesn't last very long to the point where now I start to think I'm helpless and then even hopeless. And I can't do anything about it. That begins to describe our story in so many different ways that describes us. So a great question to begin to wrestle with this morning what is holding you captive? What is that thing that is not of God that has become all-consuming, that has become captivating, that has got a grip on you and it's getting stronger and stronger? 
Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 8, which another homework assignment here. I told you to read uh, Mark chapter 4 and 5, homework assignment number one. Here's your second homework assignment, is to read Romans chapter 8. So as we continue through this story in Mark 5, Romans 8 seems to parallel a lot of the themes and spiritual concepts that we read about in Mark chapter 5. It's pretty fascinating. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 5, listen to how Paul talks about the same tension we're seeing this man wrestle with. Mark chapter 8, verse 5. Those who are dominated, that's a strong word there, controlled by, possessed by, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that, are, that please the Spirit. So notice the result here. He says, so here's what this means, verse six. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Right, so what this man is experiencing, this I'm consumed and possessed by something not of God and how it has wrecked his entire life, Paul is saying, that's our story. It is, is whether you're physically demon-possessed like this man in Mark 5 or whether we are possessed by the sin and the nature of our sin and we're dwelling on that sin, it's like the result is still the same, death and destruction. And he's pointing to us as that, in that as well. Now here, Paul's being pretty generic. He just uses the phrase sinful nature. There's a lot that kind of falls into that. Galatians 5 gives some lists on those. The list is not important, but I think it is helpful if we start to just think more specifically. So let me read off a few of these. Let me read off just a few. Don't raise your hand when you find yours. Um, I mean, you're welcome to, no judgment here, but I do think it'll be helpful to be like, ooh, that one's mine. I'm starting to allow that to consume my life. No longer is this just a thing. This has started to be all-consuming in my life. Which one is where you're at? Anger, fear, lust, greed, sexual immorality, complaining, worry, bitterness, addiction, selfishness, unrealistic expectations for yourself or for others. Because do you know where that leads? If you have unrealistic expectations of yourself or others, it just leads to a constant state of disappointment, which leads to frustration. What about regret, guilt, unforgiveness, resentment, division, divisiveness, and envy? Now, those we would all say are negative. There's a lot of seemingly good things or positive things that still, if we were to allow them in and be all consuming and take control over our lives, they also lead down a path, as Paul would describe, that would eventually lead to death. So for example, success, achievement, work, money. We can think of the good things in life that if we're not careful, if they become all consuming, it wreaks havoc on our entire lives. So with that being said, my goal here is that we don't read Mark 5 and just like, oh, that poor man, he's got a problem but we would see ourselves in that man. We would see ourselves in what he is wrestling with because it's the same thing we wrestle with as well, whether it's physically a demon or whether it's the sin that we all struggle with. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put this on the screen. I'm gonna read through it. Uh, this is not from the Bible. This is me taking the beginnings of Mark 5 that we just read together, that is scripture, and filling out the language a little bit more from what we discussed and see if this hits home just maybe a little bit more. So we could say out of Mark 5, that there was a man who had allowed something not of God into his life. At first, it didn't seem like a big deal, but over time, it became more powerful, consuming, controlling, and eventually overtook him completely. Because of this, he became distant and isolated from the rest of his community. He lived among the dead and had accepted his fate. He was helpless. No one knew what to do or how to help him. They did try. 
At first, many tried to help him, and sometimes it seemed to work for a little bit, but it never lasted. They didn't know what else to do for him, so they left him alone and considered him a lost cause. Every day, he wandered around, tormented on the inside. Every night, he tried to ease the pain by turning to anything that would distract him or provide some kind of temporary relief. He was on the path of self-destruction. He wanted freedom, but was held captive. He wanted out, but saw no way. He wanted peace, but only found pain. He was beyond despair. He was hopeless. That's the story of this man in Mark 5. And in so many ways, that's my story. And that is your story. Which, thank God, Jesus is the next part of this story. Going back to Mark chapter 5, Jesus shows up and is about to change everything. Mark 5 verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. Not what you would expect from a man that was possessed by demons. Verse 7, with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. A couple things I want to just highlight here. First of all is the word interfere. That after this demon-possessed man runs up to Jesus, falls on his face before Jesus, which is interesting. We'll get to that in a second. But then he says, don't interfere with me, or why are you interfering with me? That is a super, super, super important word, and we are going to come back to that in just a little bit. I need to make sure you know the word. What was the word? Interfere, interfering. So hold on to that. If you love taking notes in your Bible, circle it, underline it, highlight it, make a note. We're going to come back to it in just a second. The other thing to pay attention to here is, again, in this section of Mark, the last part of verse or chapter 4 and all of Mark 5 points to the authority and power of Jesus. We see that here. Like this feels like in this moment, here's this demon-possessed man, and Mark spends a lot of time setting up what he looked like and how strong he was, how evil he was, and what he was possessed by. And then Jesus steps onto the beach. And it feels like this is about to be an epic battle of good versus evil. Like, and we're excited about that. We love those movies, don't we? Like, oh, here it comes. And then Jesus and this demon are going to do battle. And it looks like the demon-possessed man is going to win. But then at the last second, Jesus is victorious. Like, we expect that moment. And that moment never happens. Like, it is the most anticlimactic moment. Jesus steps onto the beach and this demon's like, I give up. That's what he does. He runs to Jesus, lost flat on his face. Why are you torturing me? Don't torture me. Why are you interfering? And notice what he calls him. Jesus, son of the most high God. In that exact and immediate moment, this demon-possessed man acknowledges the identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. And there's no questions about it. There's no debate. There's no negotiation back and forth. It's that demon within this man says, I know exactly who you are and I give up. Don't miss that. There's not some battle here. Jesus has already won before the battle even began. He recognized and acknowledged the authority, the power, but also the identity of who Jesus is. Verse nine, then Jesus demanded, didn't ask politely. He demanded. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him. You're going to see that word a lot. There's a lot of begging throughout this story. Pay attention. It's helpful. Then the spirit, evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. 
the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs and the entire herd, about 2,000 pigs, plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Kind of an interesting slash funny, but intense part, all happening real quick. So there's a lot of questions you probably have about this part. You should ask those questions. There's a lot of things we could talk about in regards to the pigs and the demons and why and how and what's significant. And man, if you would like to email me and you wanna do some like Bible geek nerd out type stuff with me, I would love to do that with you. There's a lot of significance with what is happening and the place and the timing and the pigs and all, all the things. We could talk forever about it, but I'm running out of time. So email me if you wanna geek out on some nerd stuff uh, or on some Bible nerd stuff. It's, a, it's pretty fascinating. But here's what I do want you to pay attention to. These are at least helpful. Right, the first one is to pay attention to the aim and the goal of the demons, destruction and death. That's their entire goal. They love to, the devil and his demons love to tempt us and entice us and say, no, 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 it's actually better this way. Look what this is gonna do for you and the pleasure and the beauty and all the things. They were destroying this man from the inside out. The moment they got into the pigs, they killed him. Their entire aim is death and destruction, period. We also see the goal or the purpose and the aim of Jesus, and it's the exact opposite, life and freedom. He provided life and freedom for this man. And lastly, notice that Jesus did what no one else could do. This man could not help himself. Jesus took care of it. No one else in the town, in the community, could help this man, although they tried. Only Jesus could. He did what no one else could ever do. Jesus uses this, uh, this idea of his purpose versus the purpose of our enemy. Uh, a little bit later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, he says, Jesus says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And we see that. Steal, kill, and destroy. What does the devil and his demons steal? Our joy, our purpose, our life. The life that this demon-possessed man was living was no life at all. It had been stolen from him. Destroy, that man hadn't been killed yet, but he would almost rather be dead at that point. It was destroying him from the inside out and then kill, of course. The moment they got in the pigs, they killed him. Jesus said, though, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Don't let the word rich throw you off. He's not talking about money. He's talking about a full and an abundant life, a life of freedom, a life of peace, a life of joy. That's what he is pointing to here. So here's what happens next. The whole crazy scene with the pigs. Verse 14, here's how everybody reacted. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. Makes total sense. Did you just see what this man did with all those pigs? This crazy guy, the craziness came out of him, went the pigs, and now the pigs went crazy, and then they died. What's happening? So they are just freaked out. So they're, of course, running everywhere, telling everybody, you won't believe. No, I'm not even going to try to explain it. You've got to see it, so get over here. So they're telling everybody what they just saw. They were spreading the news as they ran. They were absolutely freaked out, didn't know what to think, so we're telling everybody about it. People rushed. They rushed out to see what had happened. 
a crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. Now notice here, we're gonna see another description of this man. We spent quite a bit of time going through the beginning of Mark 5. Here's how he was described. Possessed, an evil spirit, and lived up in the tombs. Like We spent some time describing how he, how he was and how he lived. Now we get a brand new description of this man. So as all these people showed up trying to figure out what was going on, listen to how he's described. He was sitting there, fully clothed, and perfectly sane. We're going to talk about those in just a second. Let me finish this part. He was sitting there, fully clothed, perfect, and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Let's talk about that new description of this man. A man that was tormented from the inside out. A man that was trying to do anything to ease the pain. A man that was not in control of his life, but was being controlled by something that was not of God. Now we see a man sitting, fully clothed, and perfectly sane. Not to mention, he's no longer alone. He's with Jesus. That, this whole piece of description is significant, but don't bypass that part. He had been living alone amongst the dead, and now he's sitting next to Jesus. Not alone, but with him. Let's talk about those descriptions just for a moment. Sitting there. The crowd came and saw that this man was sitting there. It's so significant. Like what you all are doing right now, sitting, you're doing such a good job at it, by the way. You're brilliant. You're, you're just doing something super significant. The reason why is because sitting is a posture that points to two things, calm and attentiveness. Calm and attentive. When you're rushing around doing things, it's hard to pay attention. You're definitely not calm. So for this man to be sitting there, He's never experienced this, at least while he's been possessed, where he's calm. He's experiencing peace and comfort, and he is attentive. He's actually paying attention to what Jesus is saying and what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus does. He gives us calm, peace, and comfort as we sit and pay attention. We're told that he's fully clothed. Uh, if you read this in one of the other gospel accounts, you read that this man, when he came up to Jesus, one of the descriptions was that he was also naked. So Mark confirms that by saying, hey, good news, he's put some clothes back on at this point. We're very thankful for that part of the story. But what does that really mean? It means that Jesus has, has taken his shame away and replaced it with dignity again. That's what Jesus does. When we come to him with all of our baggage and all of our guilt and all of our sin and all of our shame, Jesus takes it away and gives us our dignity back. If you know your Old Testament, this should make you go back to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, we have creation, which includes mankind. And then you also have the story in Genesis chapter three, you have the story of Adam and Eve being deceived by the devil who has the goal of death and destruction, separating us from God. They're deceived, they sin, and then God finds out about it, which he does that. And their immediate response to God was to try to hide Right, was try to hide from God, but God found them. And you know one of the first things that God did for Adam and Eve after they sinned? He made them clothing. He took their shame away. Because it says once they sinned, their eyes were open, they recognized good and evil, they were ashamed that they were naked. And so God is the one that took their shame away and made them clothes. We see Jesus do the exact same thing here. Takes his shame away and gives him dignity. Then we're told he was 
perfectly sane. I love this language because it's definitive. It's not, and you know, like he was getting a little bit better one day at a time. It was, he was perfectly sane. He was in his right mind. He had been able to regain control because what was once controlling him is now longer, is not any longer controlling him. What he was once powerless against, he now has power over because of Jesus. That is significant. Right, we see this in our own lives all the time. That list that I read off earlier the, of, of anger and frustration and lust and discouragement and disappointment, like all of those things, when we are consumed by them, we do not think straight. The easiest example is just to think about what happens when you get really, really hungry, right? Hangry. You don't think straight at all. You are not in your right mind. You say things you shouldn't say. You think things you definitely shouldn't think. You do things that you would never do before because you have allowed something else to begin to consume you. So for him to be in his right mind, perfectly sane, he's thinking straight again. He does not have clouded judgment anymore. And once again, what was powerful over him no longer has power over him any longer. I love those descriptions. Again, Romans 8, a lot of parallels between what we read in Mark 5 and what Paul writes in Romans 8. Let me go back to Romans 8 real quick. Verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. There's no shame. There's no guilt for those who are with Jesus, just like this man in Mark 5. And because you belong to him, look, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. That's exactly what we witness here in Mark chapter 5. Because of Jesus showing up, he takes away the shame and takes away the power of sin that leads to death because of what Jesus has already done. That man experienced in a very, very real way, in a physical way, Romans 8, 1 and 2. No more shame, no more condemnation because of the power of the life-giving spirit and we have been set free. This man experienced freedom from something that had power over him, something that was not of God, that was controlling him, He's now been set free. That's just what our Jesus does. It's what our Savior does. He meets us right where we are, mess and all, demons and all. I love that when Jesus stepped onto the beach and this demon-possessed man started rushing towards him, Jesus didn't say, wait, 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 stay there. Get your life figured out first, and then we'll talk. Can you like figure this whole crazy, like cutting yourself thing out? Can you figure that out first and then let's have a conversation? Can you get in control of yourself first so we can have a normal civilized conversation? No. He said, I want you now. I want you for who you are and I'm not gonna leave you that way though. So he says, come on. With all your baggage, with all your history, with all your pain, with all your shame, with all your guilt, with all your demons, come to me. And what does he do when we come to him? Because of his identity, his authority and his power, he frees us. He gives us peace and comfort. We get to sit with him and be calm. We get our dignity back and he takes our shame and our guilt and our sin away. And we get to have a life of freedom. That's what Jesus does and it's exactly what he did for this man here. We don't want to miss how other people responded and reacted to this whole scene, right? So this man is loving this, like he's free. He's, he's, this is a life I've never had before. But you notice other people's response when, when the rest of the town rushed in and saw, there was a word that was described here and it was the word afraid. I totally get that, 100% get that. 
that if you were to see Jesus do what he did, and then you saw the pigs do what they did, and you're like, what is going on? I'm freaking out a little bit. The whole fear thing is totally understandable. What's, what's hard, though, what's hard for me at least, and what breaks my heart is what we read at the very end of this passage. Verse 17, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Can I say, I hate that verse. I hate that part. That this crowd, this community, the people of this town, it wasn't so much the fear that got them. One commentary in discussing and kind of helping, under, help, helping people understand this passage said it this way. They wrote, they, meaning the townspeople, they were more comfortable with the evil they knew than the power they couldn't control. In other words, they had gotten so used to the evil in their town. They'd gotten so used to the evil in their own lives. In fact, they probably adjusted around it. They taught their kids, hey, remember, crazy guy up in the hills, so this is as far as you can go. So don't get too close because you might do something weird, right? And, and they've, they've tried to, to subdue him, but that didn't work. So they create other rules and boundaries. And if you were new to the town and you walked in and somebody's like, man, did you hear like somebody howling all night? Yeah, you get kind of used to it after a while, crazy guy up in the hills. But you know, you just learn to live with him. Like that seems like what's happened here. Instead of celebrating the freedom of this man, they've gotten so used to it, they don't know what to do when Jesus changes it. So for me, as I'm reading this, my heart breaks, not because of the fear that they experienced, but because they didn't want Jesus to interfere. That, that should ring a bell. Do you remember that word? Where did that come from? Where did we read that earlier? It's what the demon said when, he, when Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up, and the first thing they say when they were face down on the ground before Jesus is, why are you interfering with me, Jesus? And even though we don't have those words, I feel like that's what the townspeople are saying. Why are you interfering with us? We figured this out. We have a good system in place. He stays over there. We stay over here. We can coexist with the evil in our lives. We're fine, Jesus. And you just got rid of all of our pigs. <laughs> You're messing this whole thing up. I mean, you've got to understand that scene. Most likely the people watching the pigs did not own the pigs. So now the people watching the pigs that watch their pigs go down and drown, all 2,000 of them, now have to go back to the owners of the pig and say, hey, bad news. You're not going to believe this, but I, I, I promise this is the truth. There's this random guy comes out, crazy guy. The craziness went into the pigs. Now they're gone. Not our fault that we had nothing to do with it. We tried to stop them. You just imagine the owner saying, yeah, right. That's coming out of your paycheck. <laughs> I mean, Jesus radically changed this entire town, not just this person's life. And they didn't want Jesus to interfere. It feels like they're saying, Jesus, we just want to go back to the way it was. Jesus, regardless of what you came here to do, we just need you to go because we've gotten used to the way that things are. Jesus, why are you interfering? We liked it the way that it was. And it breaks my heart. You know what I wish that they would have done? I wish the story was, and they waited. I wish they would have waited I wish they would have waited just a little bit to have, to have seen what Jesus was all about. I wish they would have waited to hear a little bit more from Jesus. I wish they would have waited to sit with Jesus and get to know him. I wish they would have waited long enough to invite him into their home and into their lives and to hear the hope and life change that comes from Jesus. I wish they would have waited just a little bit to hear this man's story of how he went from literally death and destruction to freedom and life. I wish they would have just waited a little bit longer. 
Oh, but they like the way that things were. And we don't want to wait. We're not going to give you the time. And so we want you gone. I hate that they didn't wait. Now let's talk about the orange barrel. This is a good time to talk about this. Now that we're all worked up, can we just say this is the most frustrating thing on the planet? I mean, 100%, right? I mean, just think through your day whenever you come across one of these. Like, life is good. Life is going well. You've got your day planned out. You've got your schedule. You've got your people that you've got to meet with. You've got your things that you've got to do today. And because of your hard work and excellent planning, you have been able to basically keep that all in check until one of these shows up. As soon as that shows up, oh, man. The things you think, the things you say, <laughs> The things you do, everything begins to shift, doesn't it? And it just doesn't ruin in that moment. This ruins your whole day. This will ruin your whole week. But you all know, like, Dawson Forest gets shut down tomorrow. You know this? Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Very timely. This will help you tomorrow. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But we begin to say things like, why is this here? Like, somebody in some office said this needed to go here because this road needs some work. Well, nobody asked me. No, I'm on this road all, all day long. Like, nobody asked me if this needed work. You definitely didn't ask for my input. And nobody called to talk to me about my schedule. Like, I'll admit, maybe it needs some work, but not now. Where's my phone call? Where's my heads up? And we get so frustrated because something interfered with our plans and with our expectations and with our lives. And we get mad and we get frustrated. And you know what we don't want to do? Wait. We don't want to wait. But if we would just wait, it is actually going to be better. If we would just wait, this is actually going to improve later on. If we would just wait, we're actually going to be glad that those orange barrels were there. You know what's interesting about construction? Is after it's all done and you let a season or two pass, it is hard to think back to what it was like before, isn't it? You just get so used to it, and you end up even saying, you know what, like, I know it was a pain at the time, but it wasn't that bad. I'm really glad we did this. Can we be a people that wait? Can we be a people that wait on what God is doing? Because I promise you, it's not going to be based on our time frame. It's not going to be how we would expect but I want us to be a church. I want us to be a people. I want my family personally to not just expect Jesus to interfere. I want us to invite him to interfere, to be a people that say, Jesus, we do not want to ever be okay with things just being the way they are. We want you to interfere. But we recognize when we invite him to interfere and when he begins to move and change, oh, it's going to be tense and it's going to feel a little rocky. It feels like it's getting worse before it gets better. Please hear me. I always want our church to be in a state of construction, not physically, like don't mishear me. Like I'm super glad we are literally out of construction. Spiritually and metaphorically, I want us to always be in a state of construction because that means God is moving and he's working and he's interfering. I always want that because I know he's not done yet. I want him to always have, I want my life to always be in a state of construction because I know he's not done with me yet and man, it can feel like it's difficult. But would we wait? Would we wait to see what he's doing? Would we wait to see how he's moving? 
would we wait to see who he's using and how he wants this to end up? Church, if we're not good at waiting, we're going to get real good at resisting. I want us to be good at waiting. Because you know what waiting requires? It's not just patience. That's the easy thing. I know that sounds weird. In this case, patience is easy. What waiting really requires is trust. That while I wait, I have to trust that, God, you know what you're doing. While I wait, I have to trust that you're moving. While I wait, I'm trusting that this is going to get better. But I have to be willing to wait. And waiting always requires trust. Here's the end of the story. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was, what's the word? Amazed. Amazed. There's our word. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus actually listens to the people? They say, we want you gone. You know what Jesus said? Okay, I'll go. But story's not over. Go to Mark chapter 7, the end of Mark chapter 7. You know what you're going to read? Jesus came back. He came back. He does not give up. He will not give up on you. He did not give up on this town. And in fact, he uses this man to get everybody else ready. This man says, well, if they want you to go, that's fine, but I don't want you to go. I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've got another job for you. And we don't see this in the words here, but based on what we read at the end of Mark chapter seven, it feels like Jesus says, I need you to go and get people ready because I'm coming back in a little bit. So this man goes to these 10 towns in this area. And then later on in Mark chapter seven, Jesus comes back to the 10 towns. And you know what? They're ready for him. He begins to do miracles in that town. This time they don't resist. This time they're eager for him. But it took somebody to pave the way for him. So what do we do with this? Again, my hope is that you don't just read this story and it's, oh man, that demon-possessed man, major problem. I want us to look at this through, through what God has been doing and is doing in our own life. So let me give you three, pass- or, uh, three questions, and let me walk you through these. These are based on each of the three, we can call them characters, they're real people, uh, in groups of people based in this story. The first one is based on maybe you relate to or you resonate with the demon-possessed man with all the demons still. If that's you, you're like, man, I am consumed by something not of God. Here's something for you to begin to wrestle with. Will you acknowledge the identity, authority, power, and love of Jesus? You don't have to clean your life up. You don't have to get things straightened out. You definitely don't have to have all the right answers. You just need to be able to come like that man, fall fall in front of Jesus and say, "I, I acknowledge who you are. Help me interfere in my life. Don't do that alone, though. We are not intended to do that alone. We're We often isolate ourselves, do the opposite of that, be around other people. In fact, we have a ministry on Tuesday nights, every single Tuesday night called Celebrate Recovery, where every single Tuesday night, that's what that group of people will do. They celebrate that Jesus interferes in lives. And so we do that together every single Tuesday night to say, I've got hurts, habits, and hangups. I got things that are overpowering me, and I recognize I can't do anything about this on my own, so I need the power of Jesus. So Tuesday nights might be a great next step for you to acknowledge the power, the love, the authority, and the identity of Jesus. Maybe you resonate with or relate more to the man after he had been freed. And you say, man, like, I've experienced the freedom of Christ. I know what it's like to be alive in him. My question for you, what will you do now that you are alive and free? This man went and 
told people. This man got people ready for Jesus. This man pointed other people to Jesus. His purpose changed. What does that look like for you? What will you do now that you are alive and free? And lastly, maybe you resonate more with the townspeople and you like your life the way that it is and you like things to work on your time frame, and you like people to meet your expectations and you like things to work the way that you want them to work. Would you choose to trust in him while you wait on him? Would you begin to invite him in and actually eagerly invite him in to interfere in your life? But when he does, it's gonna get a little rocky. But would you wait and see what he might do? When you walked in today, you should have gotten communion. We're gonna take that together. This is an opportunity for us as the body of Christ to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. As you're getting your communion out, if you didn't get communion, just kind of raise your hand. Our guest services team, they'll make sure that you get what you need. I wanna read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. This is why we celebrate communion. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Communion is a time to thank God because he gave us victory over sin and death through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. The cracker represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us, taking our sin and shame away and giving us life and freedom in the process. If we would just acknowledge him who he is, and what he's done. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have already done. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you allowed yourself to go to the cross to pay for my sins. You've taken my guilt away, you've taken my shame away, and you've replaced it with peace and freedom, forgiveness and grace and life. Life now, but also the hope of eternal life with you. Jesus, may we look for you to interfere in our lives, to radically change us and the people around us, the community around us. May we be a church that is always in the state of construction because we know you're not done yet. So we invite you to make the changes. And we thank you for all the change that you've already done. In Jesus' name, amen.